Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. As a stage-struck kid in the late 50s and early 60s, my heroes were not of the usual pop star variety. No, you could keep your Cliff Richard and Billy Fury. It was Jimmy O'Dea and Maureen Potter in the Gaiety Theatre pantomime who had my undying loyalty. While Maureen and Jimmy were the undisputed stars of the show, another younger actor in the cast also captured my imagination, and I had a sort of connection with them. From an early age, I was a student of the formidable Ina Mary Burke, the doyenne of Dublin drama teachers. Every Tuesday and Friday afternoon, after school, I would make my way to join a group of other would-be thespians in her large Kildare Street studio. Berkey, as we irreverently called her, had some very distinguished alumni, and we listened with rapt attention to tales of the Hollywood legend Maureen O'Hara, Eamon Andrews, who had conquered British TV, and of Milo O'Shea, the upcoming actor and comedian, whose skills as a mime we were encouraged to emulate. Seeing Milo in the Gaiety pantomime and knowing that he had studied in that same studio made him my hero and role model. So I began to create little scenarios with titles like Going for the Messages, where, without dialogue, a ten-year-old boy sent to the shop by his mother would, on the way home, meet an angry dog, an eager playmate, and engage in other time-wasting distractions. The upshot was that all the money was lost and he returned home without the necessary items. For us drama nerds, the annual Father Matthew Fesch in the Capuchins Hall in Church Street was the highlight of our year. It was our Croke Park, our Wimbledon and our Super Bowl all rolled into one. One year, as well as working on poetry and monologues for the elocution and drama tests, I was encouraged to enter the under-12 mime competition and lo and behold, Milo O'Shea was the adjudicator. To my absolute delight, he awarded me first prize and a photograph was taken with the great man for the Irish press. When it appeared in the paper, even my sceptical brothers seemed impressed, well, at least for a short while. Now, by some means, now lost to the ravages of memory, my mother managed to get a copy of the photo to Milo and amazingly, he promised to autograph it and deliver it to our house the following Sunday. That weekend was a blur of excitement and a flurry of tidying, which was not an easy job in a house with five growing boys. I tried to assure my mother that he would only come to the front door, but she was having none of that. Top to bottom, all had to be sparkling for the arrival of the celebrity. Imagine my disappointment when Sunday passed and no sign of Mr O'Shea. How well I thought it was too much to expect. A full week went by and the house returned to its normal chaotic state. On the following Sunday morning, my mother answered the door, expecting to see Richard Good, my best friend from two doors down, coming to play. She was very surprised to see the star of stage and screen himself standing on our doorstep. As good as his word, if a little tardy, Milo was delivering on his promise. Many years later, when Milo O'Shea had become a major film and television star in the States and I was pursuing my career in theatre, I directed Brian Friel's Philadelphia Here I Come at the Roundabout Theatre on Broadway. Milo played S.B. O'Donnell, the taciturn father. 
Although I had casually met him over the years, this was our first time working together. And happily, my hero did not have feet of clay. He gave a beautifully nuanced performance, and he was a charming, hardworking, and delightful colleague. That signature twinkle in his eye was a daily heartwarming treat, and the famous eyebrows could express sorrow, anger, or joy without a word spoken. I managed to get a copy made of the photo, and I presented it to Milo on opening night. He was astonished that our paths had crossed all those years ago, and that the little boy in the photo, looking up at him adoringly, was now directing him on Broadway. Subsequently, we worked together in Washington, D.C., and at the Guthrie Theatre in Minneapolis, where he played Fluther Good in Sean O'Casey's The Plough and the Stars. And we remained friends until his death in 2013. That original photo now hangs above my desk, and when I look at it, I remember that long-ago act of kindness to a ten-year-old boy which cemented Milo O'Shea in my pantheon of heroes, from which he will never be dislodged. The invasion of Ukraine came a week after my mother Monica's 83rd birthday, which I had celebrated in Chile, where she lives, with her husband Carlos, who is almost 88. The war had punctuated an unusual week of reflection, coming at the end of an exhibition I had mounted with my wife Catherine. The objects of love presented at Dublin Castle had been years in the planning, and its launch was delayed a further 12 months by COVID. Comprising a precious collection of objects, photographs and documents, the exhibition tells the story of a Jewish family before, during and after Nazi occupation in Poland. The family, of course, is mine, and my mother, who survived the Warsaw Ghetto and numerous other reckless encounters with mortality, was observing the unfolding reaction to the exhibition with revolving sentiments. What impact would this exhibition have on an audience coming to this history with little or no connection? How does the public presentation, the laying bare of her entire life through the prism of her youngest son's eyes, contribute to her own understanding of the war and its aftermath? The images and reports coming from Ukraine seemed unimaginable, crashing into my own post-mortem of the exhibition. The bombing, accidentally or deliberately, of the site of Babin Yar, a ravine where thousands of Jews had been executed by the Nazis in 1941 over two days, had a particularly disturbing resonance, a kind of Holocaust redux, killing the victims in the pit a second time, with a backdrop of millions of refugees whose lives had suddenly been upended or torn apart by one individual's monomaniacal vision. The pain for my mother to witness this human carnage in Europe again 
is especially harrowing, although she keeps the details of this new anguish private. She doesn't need fresh horror to kettle her memories into an inescapable corner. Not now. A few days before the end of my visit, Monica began to articulate her feelings around the exhibition at Dublin Castle, firstly to Catherine and then, more confidently, to me. Certain words bubbled up to the surface. Relief, pride, gratitude. But she was insistent that gratitude did not really come close to expressing how she felt, implicit though it was in her feelings. And then she settled with self-assurance on the word that best described her emotions, catharsis. A well-worn word, perhaps, that has its ancient origins as a medical term for menstruation, but was adopted for dramatic effect in Aristotle's Poetics to describe the purging effect that can happen after tragedy. Much later, Sigmund Freud embraced catharsis into his own concept of psychoanalysis. For Monica, catharsis came in two separate guises. She explained that seeing the arc of her life as a complete event, she now no longer felt any survivor guilt. Survivor guilt is a phenomenon that many Holocaust survivors experienced. It seems counterintuitive, but it's a syndrome that's well documented. She recounts so vividly returning, age six, with her mother to her hometown of Łódź in Poland at the end of the war, where the glare of incredulous adults, especially mothers, singled her out. How and why had she survived when their child had not? The second catharsis related to the impossibly complicated relationship with her own mother. Saviour, heroine, manipulator, tormentor. Protecting a child in such stressful circumstances left an indelible imprint. Hidden identities, broken hearts, and the casual near misses where death visits in an instant. War often turns the innocent into the implicated. Liberation may never mean freedom, not in the emotional sense. Her mother expected the kind of gratitude that no child should ever give to a parent. Monica said that she no longer felt any guilt about her relationship with her. The exhibition had allowed her to see her life on her terms, as an individual with her own entitlements, an individual no longer responsible for her mother's happiness. And this moment came 37 years after her mother's death. Two landmark moments in Monica's emotional geography, whose contours I could simply never have located, let alone imagined shaping. But catharsis was to have a third and unexpected hearing at the end of our trip. Ten minutes after depositing us at the airport, Monica and her husband Carlos were carjacked at gunpoint. Four young thugs attempted to force them out of the car. Monica, who was driving, baited the assailant on her side. Shoot me! Kill me, she said, in the Spanish that she had acquired late in life, as he tried to prevent her from reaching down to press the engine starter. He shouted to his colleagues to get the old woman out of the car. On Carlos's side, 
his assailant was trying to free him from the seatbelt. Carlos took out his retractable pencil with its steel tip and stabbed him, pointedly. Meanwhile, as Monica's attacker made another lunge for her hand, she sank her teeth deep into his arm and he recoiled. At that moment, with both doors open wide, she fired up the engine and floored the accelerator. They had escaped. The attackers had picked on the wrong two octogenarians. Not being lightweight in any sense of the word, their generous girth made them very difficult to pull out of their seats, especially with their belts attached. They also have a long experience of the world and are not easily intimidated. My mother's instinct for survival operates at a different level. Fear, if it appears at all, comes after the event. Monica was delighted that both her and Carlos's pacemakers had worked perfectly, especially as she had just had her own adjusted the week before. But she expressed outrage at being referred to as the old woman, and when I asked her what her attackers were like, she replied, very ugly. The one I bit probably has food poisoning now. Besides, the gun looked like an imitation. Uncle Billy's Fortune When Uncle Billy sent the 500 quid from Toronto, we nearly hung the Canadian flag from the window to salute the maple leaf. We filled our heads with pine forests, great prairies full of swaying wheat. Manitoba, Quebec, New Brunswick, place names tracked down in an atlas became a litany of amazement recited like prayers or spells. The word Ontario was often in our conversation. The wonder of our Billy making a life there on the shores of some great, unimaginable lake. Our Billy, who never came home, but sent this one short letter with the cheque describing how he had bettered himself lived in a bay and gable house with terracotta brick beside neighbours who were old money. The photo of his wife enclosed showed that he had married a tall, no-nonsense type with high teeth, a woman in a woollen coat dressed for the snow. His photo revealed an old man, 60 years on another continent. Uncle Billy's money made our bedroom flush with new paint in coral pink. Embossed wallpaper was an opulent braille under our fingertips. The suite of furniture bought for the front room was in lovely shades of tawny and rust, flecked through with a colour we called maple, a detail about which we were always specific and insistent. Thank you.
A group of us, men as it happens, were talking recently about relationships between fathers and sons, about closeness and about the sometimes fraught nature of those relationships. And that got me thinking about the sometimes troubled connection I had with my own father, particularly when I was in my teens and twenties. We seemed to have the ability to push each other's buttons, to wind each other up about everything from politics to the length of my hair. I remember one summer when my father had got me a student job on the permanent way with CIE. It involved us travelling together from Castledermot to Athai each morning, leaving home just after half past six. At the time, I had shoulder-length hair, and I had decided to part it down the middle, a la John Lennon. This was not something that came naturally, so at night I put two clips on each side in an attempt to train it into falling left and right. On this particular summer morning, having stayed up late listening to Lennon's Imagine album, I stumbled downstairs and sat across the table from my father for a hurried breakfast. He looked at me, sighed deeply and said, That's ridiculous. I hope you're not going to work like that. What I didn't realise was that I had forgotten to take one of the clips out of my hair. The 20-minute journey that followed set the tone for the week. Acrimonious quarrelling about what was and wasn't acceptable. About fashion and common sense. About the world that was and the world that might be. As ever, one thing inevitably led to another totally unrelated argument. I thought of that disagreement during the discussion with my friends. And I thought about the fact that my father was actually quite a mild-mannered man. And I thought about the fact that I never once heard him complain about his life or his childhood. His mother had died when he was an infant, and he and his siblings were taken in by their grandmother. A couple of years later, his father remarried, and the family was reunited, only for his stepmother to die while my father was still a young boy. By the time he was twelve... He had lived in Boris and Ossery, Carlow, Selbridge and Athai. Leaving school early, my father migrated to England and worked there before returning to join his father and brother as an employee of CIE. My father's ambition had been to become a station master or inspector with the railway company. But his involvement with the NATE union meant that never happened and he ended his career as foreman in a Thai station. A lifetime's ambition had not been achieved. I thought of the day of my father's funeral, of looking at his body in his coffin, and realising that in all of my adult life I had never hugged him. I don't know whether he would have been comfortable with the idea. It just never happened. But I was glad that in the last years of his 91-year lifetime, we had built bridges and mended fences and done all the things that sound clichéd but, in reality, are a consolation when the time for a final parting arrives. And I thought, too, of one of the last conversations we had. We were discussing the presence of a mouse under the floorboards in my house. He had always been an expert at getting rid of them. 
I was explaining that each time the mouse set off the trap I had laid, the spring caught in the board above, allowing it to escape. I waited for the solution. But the only thing my father said was, every creature wants to live as long as it can. The following week, he died. As the conversation with my friends wound down, I found myself thinking and saying something that had never crossed my mind before that moment. I had spent years berating my father and criticising so many things about him without ever accepting the fact that he had had about a tenth of the opportunities that had come my way in a lifetime of relative ease. He had taken about one-tenth of the wrong turns that I've taken over my lifetime. And yet, all he had wanted for me and my sister and brother was that we do well in the world, get the education that had been denied him, and make a mark in our lives. And now, 23 years after his death, I'm realising at last what a good and kind and supportive father he was. There are places I remember all my life, though some have changed, some forever, not for better. Some have gone and some remain. All these places have their moments. Dance. While others go about their business, she grips my hand, coaxes me to the hall where the sun illuminates Venetian blinds and paints the rug with stout grey lines. Zara stands on shadow bars, delights in the absurd marionette with dandelion hair and spider arms, obeying her command. I join her game and our puppets dance from floor to wall, stretch spindle fingers to the ceiling until she tires suddenly and goes, leaving my shadow bereft, spectral hands still reaching upwards. In silence, I wait for her call, certain that I will follow. looked at it in a while, but when I lifted a well-thumbed book down from my bookshelves again recently, it fell open, as it always does, at a particular page. Why? Because it's that page, page 155, that keeps drawing me back. The specifics there, in just a couple of paragraphs, transport the reader to the outskirts of Moneymore in South Derry. It's Friday, the 8th of April, 1977. Good Friday as it happens, and it's just after 2.30 in the afternoon. Having established the setting and the timeline, then come the words that leapt out at me the first time I read them, causing my heart to lurch. 
The Volkswagen reversed, writes David Beresford in his seminal book, Ten Men Dead. Trying for a three-point turn, it ran into a ditch on the side of the road. The engine raced. It was stuck. Hughes and two colleagues jumped out of the Volkswagen and opened fire. The four policemen scrambled to get out of the patrol car. Sheehan was hit almost immediately and fell back. The other three ran for cover. A second officer, Constable McCracken, fell, mortally wounded. That final sentence was the one that prompted the heart lurch. Constable McCracken, mortally wounded. John T. McCracken, a young RUC officer aged just 22 and my old school friend, shot dead, his life taken in cold blood on a country road 45 years ago. He'd be 67 now. With years of service behind him, he'd probably be long retired, spending his days pottering around his hometown or travelling or minding his grandchildren. He might well have been sitting in the Aviva Stadium during this year's Six Nations, cheering Ireland on, just as all those years ago, he was always a stalwart supporter of his own school rugby team. That school was Coleraine Academical Institution, the boys-only school in the County Derry town where I attended the girls-only Coleraine High School. The Inst boys, as they were known, were a source of fascination to us in those awakening teenage years. And while the boys in general had their common appeal, it was the Inst boarders, and especially those a bit older than us, who came with an added patina of glamour. Although God knows there was little that could be considered glamorous about the boarder that was my old friend J.T. McCracken. With his awkwardly shy disposition, his thick glasses and a tendency to blush at the slightest bit of attention, J.T. was like a walking advertisement for teenage gaucheness. In fact, when he was first introduced to me, it was as Red McCracken, the nickname the result of his blushing habit. My, oh my, I can't help thinking now, the cruelty of youth. With JT, what you saw was exactly what you got. A shy, kind and loyal boy who would have given you his last shilling. He was never called anything but JT by those of us who knew him well. In Lost Lives, however, the book that name after name after name tells the stories of all those who died during the Troubles, he's listed as... John T. McCracken, Protestant, aged 22, killed on April the 8th, 1977. Killed, that's what it says. But JT was murdered on that Good Friday afternoon, shot dead by Francis Hughes, who was to die himself just four years later in the 1981 hunger strikes. When JT was killed that Easter in 1977, I was home from university in England. I can still remember it as if it was yesterday. I was devastated by the news of his death. How could JT just be wiped out so suddenly and savagely? Even my father remembered him. Was that that shy fellow with the glasses who used to call to the door looking for you? He asked me on that terrible Friday. I've been thinking a lot about JT these past few weeks. 45 years. It seems like a lifetime. It is a lifetime, but one that I have lived 
and JT has been denied. All these decades later, do I still despise Francis Hughes? No, I don't. What I see now with the passing of the years are two young men of similar age from different sides of the so-called divide. Two young men afforded different opportunities. Two young men who were both dealt a bad hand, one having his life brutally taken in an instant, the other giving his life as he saw it, and in a horrendous way, for what he believed or was told was a cause worth dying for. Two men dead, my friend and his foe. But what's done is done. And 45 years on from that dreadful Good Friday afternoon in South Derry, all I can hope is that JT and Francis Hughes are both at peace. For to live with bitterness is to live without hope. And what we must hope for now is that the writer L.P. Hartley was right and that the past is indeed a foreign country and a place where none of us on this island ever wants to live again. Blush on the Pear I'm drawn by the perfect blush on the pear On her light feet the dog trails as I go into the kitchen She follows each movement as I hold the fruit And begin to slice it I eat and offer her a taste She looks up at me sweetly Asking for more and more again I've given her nearly half, eat the last and leave her lick the dish. Tonight the moon waits, concealed in cloud. Venus seems to be winking at me from the night sky. On this morning's programme, we heard Meeting Milo by Joe Dowling, Catharsis by Oliver Sears, Uncle Billy's Fortune, a poem by Margaret Galvin, Father and Son was by John McKenna, Dance, a poem by A.M. Cussins, JT was by Rosalind D and Blush on the Pear a poem by Grace Willens The music was Broadway Boogie Woogie by Jim Parker played by Wallace Collection Old Polish Tango by Vladislav Liedauer sung by Olga Mileshtuk Maple Leaf Rag by Scott Joplin was played by Philip Dyson In My Life by The Beatles Karl Orff's Gassenhauer, played by the Karl Pinecoffer Percussion Ensemble, and The Coolin, played by Clodagh Warnock on fiddle, with Jolene McLaughlin on harp. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And for more about the programme and other RTE arts and culture programmes, do take a look at rte.ie slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.